just I just started. <laughs> no countdown. Um, okay, here's another episode of Inscripted. Um, Phil's all swagged out. He's got the light box. He's got the cat. <laughs> and I've got some uh, got some business cars ready for a transform in Vegas this weekend or next week. Um, but today we're we're going to speak about something that happened actually. The last podcast we recorded, we were going through kind of the thick of this. You were about to have a meltdown. We're both stressed out. Um, we didn't want to speak about it on the podcast because everything was so uncertain. You know, we were banking with SVB. Um, we were unsure if we'd managed to get the money out on time. Um, no one knew what was going to happen. You know, really the assumption was if your money was left in SVB, it could be gone, which was terrifying because all of our money was there. Um, luckily, it seems like we've avoided, um, you know, the worst case scenario, um, but it's got a lasting effect and I think it's got, they're going to have a lot of ramifications on the industry as a whole. But I guess, firstly, what were you thinking when it was going down? It was probably the worst 12 hours of my life or maybe 24 hours of my life, really. I think it was, it was, it was kind of weird because I think if you, um, you know, if you, I feel like if, you, if your business goes bust, but you, you've kind of made some bad plays and it's really because of you, then whilst that would be very painful, I think you can kind of accept that you made mistakes. But this, I mean, I guess we maybe made a mistake because from a treasury perspective, you know, almost all of our cash was in one place or in two banks, but with the same bank. Um, but yeah, I think I just, I was sort of in disbelief before the money kind of uh, landed in other banks. It's like, how could we have messed up so badly? How, how could it have collapsed in this way? Uh, maybe I was catastrophizing a lot, but I think it was quite hard not to catastrophize, really. But, and frankly, the money's in the ether somewhere overnight. <laughs> Who knows if it's coming, going to land somewhere else? Yeah, it was really like a movie. We were, we were actually running the hire event on the Thursday night. Luckily, we were with our CFO who was there, a few cocktails deep, <laughs> and he comes running over um, saying, shit, have you seen what's happening? You know, with, with SVB, we need to move our money. And luckily, you know, we were, we acted pretty quickly. Um, but it was really surreal. You then logged on to Twitter, you logged on to social and there was this mass kind of panic and fear that was being spread. What do you think of that reaction? Cause to me, you know, how quickly that spread online and the panic that set in was pretty scary. And it was very eye-opening. What do you think about that? I think it's, def well, it's definitely shown central banks that uh, bank runs in the modern social media age are going to be terrifying, much more terrifying than they've ever been before. Um, I mean, the power of social, really, it happened because of social media, really, and because of Twitter, I think. You know, VCs particularly are very active on Twitter. And, um, you know, once uh, it's also a very networked world as well. So I think once uh, one VC gets spooked, then a lot of VCs will get spooked basically and that's clearly what happened um, I mean what do I think about it I suppose I, I do think that Silicon Valley Bank or banks that are sort of allied to the VC space are probably particularly vulnerable to this kind of as you could call it kind of group think um, just because of how networks the whole industry is you know if you're a VC with 50 portfolio companies, then if you think that it's going to go down, then 50 companies are going to pull their money out. And maybe even the VC might be banking with them as well. So that's, some, you know, 
infinite a large amount of money as well so but well i, I don't i don't think it's the precursors lots of bank runs hopefully i'm not going to eat my words on that but i think um i do think it was a, a very special set of circumstances both in terms of social media and um the actual nature of the deposits in that bank as well yeah it was definitely you know heard around the tech industry and you know it was the tech news and the in thing to talk about but outside of people that knew about tech you asked them what's going on with svb and they wouldn't have had any clue they would have been what's svb you know so i, I think that absolutely as you're saying you know, in the tech industry this travels really fast and the majority of silicon valley bank's customer base was you know bc backed startups so they're probably in a very unique position from that point of view um what do you think, you know, we saw a very varied response from people um, online, which was actually, again, really shocking to me. You had people who, you know, clearly saw this panic and took their money out and advised others to take their money out. Um, and then you had people who were almost trying to show some loyalty for the bank and encourage people to keep their money in, you know, SVB, whilst all of this panic was going on you know my view is that the risk was so asymmetric you know what's the worst that can happen if you take your money out you know this is all just a massive overreaction and you put your money back in you know the worst case if you leave it in is you could lose everything you know and i definitely from my point of view wouldn't sleep any better at night knowing that i've been loyal to a bank when all my employees you know payroll had disappeared and and the company had gone bust. Like, what did you think of that dynamic of you know, that, you know, the people encouraging you to stay and encouraging you to leave? I mean, I don't trust it most of, overall. Like, I think I think there were. Seem to remember reading something that some VCs were on online saying, "Keep your money in," but actually, on the other hand, in you know, in private Slack channels, telling their portfolio companies to take the money out. Um, so I wonder whether some of it is just BS, basically, and they were. I don't know, grandstanding or just trying to get likes or clicks or whatever uh, by doing it. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with you on in the sense of you know maybe an individual company who actually did keep their money in. I don't really see the point. I mean, I think that you know SBB has played a really important role in the startup scene for thirty years or so, and I think we shouldn't underestimate that. That is, you know, there's a lot of goodwill I think based on that. But the reality is the bank isn't loyal to you, so why should you be loyal to the bank? And I'm a you know real believer in sort of free market economics, and if Silicon Valley Bank disappears and there is a need for a Silicon Valley Bank two, then Silicon Valley Bank two will emerge. And just because it's a huge bank at the moment, or what you know certainly was a big bank, doesn't mean that another startup bank couldn't set up and get capitalized and you know get going on that. So, but I don't think having loyalty to brands is particularly worth it if it if it puts you know your employees and your own livelihood at risk. You have to look after number one. By the situation they were in, they weren't being loyal to their customer because they were mismanaging their risk, you know, poorly. So, you know, the bank's duty is to protect customers' funds and they failed to do that. So they, they didn't keep up their side of the bargain. Yeah. It's quite interesting to say, is that sort of the purpose of the bank though, I suppose? You know, that, that's what the customer wants it to be. But it's, even the purpose of the bank clearly is just to make money, I suppose. And, you know, it's a, you know, businesses are unthinking and, 
you know, there's nothing, there's no humanity about a business. I think it's just, they say, money making machine and particularly a bank. So, um, I mean, they made a very bad job of that because they lost a load of money. But, um, yeah, I think that, you know, they, they only really want to show loyalty to their customers because they want to make money, really. I mean, that's quite a cynical view, right? But I don't think it's wrong. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. We've, obviously, we've talked to length about whether, you know, what, how bad was the play, I suppose, really, that they made? It, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't reckless in terms of what they were doing. It was a misguided, probably, but, you know, certainly quite different to how banks were in 2008 in terms of like just, you know, very opaque securities that they were investing in and all that kind of stuff and no real, you know, they had really no idea what they were investing in in terms of the mortgage-backed securities. Um, whereas this is, you know, government bonds. Like, it doesn't come any uh, less risky than government bonds. Um, but it's really the nature of how long they were dated. And, you know, they're their sort of their trust, I suppose, really in the Fed in terms of the fact that they were going to the interest rates were going to remain very, very low as they were at that time when they when they bought them. Do you think this is going to change companies' approach to how they manage their money? And do you think it will open up opportunity for new companies? You know, there's companies out there like in the fintech space like Mercury, who I think are offering you know, five million dollars FDIC and they do that by acting as a broker almost and spreading your funds across multiple different banks. Um, so you get during you know, the multiplier effect of the 250k protection, um, which seems like a good kind of first, first stop. But I feel like, like you were just talking about before that, you know, the customer wants somewhere that's protecting their money. I think that that's exactly what people want. They want to be able to put their money somewhere that is safe. And the bank isn't taking, you know, levels of risk with their money that they don't, you know, that it's not reciprocated back to them. Um, you know, and there should be an element of choice if you want your funds to be allocated to riskier assets um, and you share in that return. You know, so I can see a world where some kind of subscription-based bank, you know, comes in where you pay a fee for having, you know, your, your assets kept completely separate ring fence you know fully insured um and then if you want to opt in to joe investing or um getting returns on your your company's cash you can do that but that's an opt-in process um now i don't know what the unit economics look like and if banks could even survive doing that or what the subscription would have to be but i feel like if you're thinking about what the customer wants that's probably definitely more aligned definitely and i kind of look at it like uh you know, think about sort of a, a business banking relationship. You pay a fee usually for on a monthly basis if, you, if you've got a proper bank. You don't make any interest a lot of the time, so therefore that is not an investment in my opinion. So there's no there's no upside for for the customer. So therefore they shouldn't really be taking any risk at that time. Like if you if you make an investment and you expect to get a return, there's also a chance that you will lose your money, and that is you know it's all in the terms of conditions in every country. It's just you know everyone knows that. So. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, it seems like there are actually very few banks that don't invest, I think, and don't don't sort of play in the markets at all. I think um, the only one that I actually know of that doesn't, and there probably are others, um, is uh, C. Hall, the Hall's Bank in, in the UK. Um, this, well, I think it's the oldest bank in the UK. It's probably one of the oldest banks in the world. It was 1600s. It was uh, founded 
uh, and they don't do any investments. So they, they do lend money to uh, customers. Um, and it's all high net worth people and, and businesses, um, but it's all very conservative and mainly they're just keeping a lot of you know, probably cash bonds and gold probably to offset everything. But it's all, they don't, they don't invest money that they don't have. And it's, um, you know, for me, I think that's kind of, when, you, when you've got these sort of venture backed companies, when you do have a, a lot of cash in the bank, um, that's really what you want. Because I think for me, I think the FIDIC level being at 250k is just so low. It's just like even, you know, even for a sort of small to medium sized business, it's, just, it's, it's kind of nothing basically. It's a real, it's a spec on, you know, you wouldn't, if you'd lost all your money and you just got 250k back, you wouldn't be a going concern as a business. So it might as well not be there, basically. Um, I think there's probably some way that they could, that banks could work with FIDIC to provide different levels of insurance, I think. Um, because apparently the banks and savings organizations pay FIDIC as sort of subscription. Well, I, I don't know exactly how it works, but presumably based on how much cash is being insured or how many deposits are being insured. I think giving different people different levels of protection could be really good. Um, I do think the Mercury thing is a really good idea, but it is, it's sort of a work around a bad scheme, I would say, um, rather than a, rather than a sort of perfect solution. I do wonder how it actually works in practice. Because if you think about if you've got, you know, say a payroll each month of you know a few few million or something like that, then if you've got you've got to pay a payroll provider in one go or if in the in the US every two weeks, um, how does that actually practically work? Like how do you pay? Do you have to pay in sort of eight installments or something like that, or do they somehow pull the money out in one go and it sort of gets in one payment? I mean, you could you could do multiple payments. If, I'm sure that payroll providers would do that, but it just seems a bit messy. Especially if you're scaling up them further, and what if your payroll was twenty million? Are you going to make you know fifteen to twenty payments every two weeks if you're in the US? It seems, you know, it feels like there needs to be some change on that. But I do feel like the con consumers that and that includes businesses need to be protected. I don't think the banks themselves need to be protected. And I think there's a quite an important distinction there that you know people who maybe aren't as close to the issue are, you know, angered about really, and you know, there's a lot of press about it, but. Yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. In terms of the backstop and the protection, I, I think I've gone really, I think my head's in two places because I think that, you know, from a, if I had, if, if we had our money and it stayed in SVB, you know, clearly I would want that to be backstopped. And I think, you know, the, the, the depositors in those banks have made no, they've made no mistake, really. You know, it's, you put your money with a trusted, bank the top 20 bank in the u.s um you expect that they are going to behave responsibly there's governance there's regulators that look over this and your money is in you know pretty safe hands um i don't think it's a depositor's job to look at the balance sheet of a bank and determine you know how secure that bank is or what kind of danger or risk level that bank is under that's a completely you know separate body that's supposed to do that for you um, so do I think that depositors should lose their money in these kind of situations? No. However, I think that government intervention also might not be the right thing because, you know, in a capitalist, you know, true free market, you need to let bad ideas fail and bad companies fail. And we're propping these companies up, you know, 
artificially. You had the you know, 2008 financial crisis. You've got you know this happening now, and surely if some if a system is so fragile and badly run, then it's the wrong system. And I feel like if it's being going to be continually propped up, then there's going to be no real change, and we're just going to be you know recycling the same problems um, in different forms. You know, the idea of, of the free market is, you know, if there's a product that doesn't work, um, you know, something like this would happen. People would lose their money. They would never use that bank again. There would be some kind of revolt and there would be forced change and the system would have to change because of that. Um, whereas we're kind of stopping that from happening. And, you know, there's kind of this ethical question in my head, which is do people need to get burnt for progress to happen? Right. Um, and, you know, it's very easy to say from like a philosophical point of view, um, when it doesn't actually impact you, you know, like I said, if we had our money and it would have stayed in SVB, would I have been like, let's get burned so the system can improve? Probably not. Um, but yeah, I feel like the system doesn't work. Um, you know, clearly God knows what the regulators are doing because they absolutely were sleepwalking and missed this completely. Um, so they should be embarrassed, frankly, and there should be a review of how that happened. Um, because if you can't rely on those people to keep your money safe and to make sure people are playing by the rules, then, then who can you, you know? Um, and, and, and also it opens questions about what else is happening that they're missing. Um, what about you? What do you think about financial regulation in general then? So if you, if you're a real free market economic economist, like do you even do, do you yeah it's it's really it's a really challenging question isn't it because it's like is you know should you protect the people or is it incumbent on everyone to check the risk level of everything and or should you just put keep your money under the mattress yeah i feel like ultimately i feel like it's very hard to do now because it's so intermingled like you know you have regulation somewhere you don't have it other places um I feel like if you start from a, if you had a blank slate and you started with the best products win and the bad products just naturally lose because, you know, no one wants to use them, they'll go out of business, you know, it's that question about, you know, the, the bakeries that won't serve, um, certain groups of people. Right. And the argument is let them do what they want. You know, they're, they're a private business, um, and they will, you know, they will go out of business. They won't become a popular big chain because. You know clearly what they're doing most people don't agree with right so their business ultimately will fail you'd think right um but if you go in there and you stop them and you know then it gets into a lot more of a gray area in terms of you know what you can and can't do as a private business owner i think the same with banks you know if if a bank is being run poorly and you know people lose money they don't feel that their money's safe they feel like people are taking extreme um, risk with their money then depositors won't go to that bank and and instead they'll go to banks that are you know more sensible uh, and responsible with their money i do think though like you said you know the finance world is very it made to look and, and sound very complicated so people i think again don't know what the details they don't know what risk looks like they don't know what all these investments mean so it is a very 
difficult challenge. Um, and some of these banks are so massive now that, you know, if one of them goes under, it is such a big problem. Um, you know, like the, the too big to fail situation. Um, so I don't know. I just, I think that it's clear that something is broken yeah. and it needs to be fixed. Yeah. What do you think about, um, as with HSBC buying SVB UK and then the possibility that, um, the U S bank might be sold as well. And, you know, into probably you know, HSBC, biggest bank in Europe. You know, I guess if someone bought uh, Silicon Valley Bank USA, then it would probably be a big bank as well. You know, does that kind of almost ruin the beauty of what SVB was in terms of being, you know, kind of independent of other banks? Does it dilute it? Is it just a brand then? Well, I think it could be a good thing. I think th from what I've heard, you know, we, we banned with SVB, but I don't think like you, you were saying earlier that we didn't get the full service because we weren't a VC-backed company. And I think, you know, for VC-backed companies that, you know, need support and need a partner that can really help them through the unique challenges of being a startup, and um, they were really good at that. They took more of a risk, you know, bringing people on. They were, they were there to support companies through their different growth phases. And they, they, we've been to quite a few of them. They put on a lot of like webinars or presentations around very important topics for founders, um, which, you know, we went to a few about launching in the U S and things that were actually quite helpful. And so they were really supportive of that ecosystem. So to me, that's more of a behavior thing. So if the bank continues to uphold those behaviors, it could be a really good thing for HSBC to have this arm that is very startups specific and support startups um but then has the security of this big big hsbc bank um it's just i think that the issue that svb clearly got into now is that you know they weren't diversified you know they had a huge amount of risk because all of their customers were high growth venture back companies and you know when tech is being hit hard now deposits got drained because people are burning through money you know um they were in a situation where people can maybe pay their debt or you know, interest rates were going up and it was just a wrong, it was just a poor cocktail for, for, you know, their customer base. So maybe, you know, with HSBC again, that the, the kind of diversity of depositors is, is maybe totally different now. Um, I mean, it's certainly a lot more secure. There's no doubt about that. It's just whether, I mean, I, I think what HSBC, sorry, what SVB needs to do is make sure they maintain the staff and make sure you've got these really well-networked people who, you know, know all of the VCs. So, you know, when you're a series A company going to series B, then there's definitely intros that can be made there. And, you know, I'd imagine that the VCs probably leaned on SVB from a perspective of, you know, who's doing well, who's not doing well, you know, that kind of thing. Even if that was a bit, you know, maybe behind the curtain kind of thing. I do think they were quite inherently just in the community. Um, yeah, who knows? It's a, it's an interesting thing buying a brand like that. I think because I do think the brand itself has been sullied by this episode. Really, even if even if now they are capitalized by a huge global bank, it's still I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure I feel that warm about banking with them again. Just because you know some of the people in that business clearly weren't doing their jobs properly, and they they were in very important roles. Or actually, I think they were saying something like that there was no chief risk officer for nine months before before this happened and you know i think you could infer that that had an impact on what was happening because a lot shifted around in that nine months so you know what what was right nine months prior to this just wasn't right three months after that basically um and they just didn't react to it clearly
or maybe they were trying to react to it, but in a clumsy way. I think the big standout for me was how poor their communication was during this whole thing. That to me was, I feel like, it, I don't know if there's certain regulatory, I don't know, time limits where you can't communicate when certain things are happening. Um, so I'm, I'm not really sure, but from that Thursday night when you know Twitter was blowing up and we moved our money all the way to when HSBC bought them, there was no communication at all. We'd been a customer with them for seven years. We had you know, millions of dollars in the account and there wasn't one email, there wasn't one you know, account manager picking up the phone, there was nothing to let us know that, you know, what was going on or, you know, anything like that. So I think that was really poor and, and maybe if there was better communication, it could have quelled some of the fear and some of the panic perhaps. Um, but that was really shocking to me, just how poor that comms, those comms has been. And since HSBC have bought them, there has been a lot more communication a lot better communication from whoever's running running it there. Um, in contrast, you know, I personally bank with First Republic Bank, and there was a ton of you know obviously pressure on them. They've lost about ninety percent of their stock value across the last six months. Um, you know, people were really worried pulling money out of that bank too, and consistently from when that happened to present day, almost every single day, my kind of account manager reaches out. There's message from the bank itself just the update on the situation and what's happening and it's complete night and day of how those two banks have dealt with it so yeah i i do think whoever uh you know that's a good lesson for anyone running a business how important communication is because even just hearing from someone to say you know look everything's fine you know, this is just panic out there here's you know a statement from our balance sheet showing how strong we are at the moment yeah it builds some confidence at least. Yeah, I think it's just making the effort as well, isn't it? It's a little bit like in recruitment yeah. where, you know, sort of no no news is, is uh, bad news and just, you know, even, even just letting someone know that the process is just taking longer and you don't really know what's happening, but, you know, I still care, I think is, it goes quite a long way. And I think that's really what we were looking for is, you know, I don't think you have to breach regulatory rules to just be in communication and just say, hey, guys, you know, we obviously acknowledge what's going on right now. You know, there are some things we know, some things we don't know, but this, you know, this is like, like you say, you know, this is our balance sheet or you know, these are the steps that we're taking at the moment um, because you want to run a business going forward. And, you know, I think they were all hoping to get bought out, which, you know, half of it's been bought out, but you know, you've got to build, keep that reputation going because otherwise you're not going to have any customers. So what do you think you know, the impact's going to be now? You know, we've got, we had another uh, 25 basic points hike and, you know, there seems to still be some volatility in the sector. You know, it seems like, well, maybe not, but for now it seems like the tech layoffs have kind of peaked. We've had a number of pretty big ones, you know, Facebook, Amazon recently, where they're like 10K each level, but it seems like the volume of companies making layoffs is you know, slowing down. And um, it seems to me that, you know, tech was the first kind of sector here to take its medicine and get hit and um there's probably a number of reasons for that um but i think over the coming months it's going to filter down you know we've seen finance now be hit you're going to have real estate you know i think that's going to get hit you know one of the biggest contingencies of, of workers um is in the construction and, and real estate space um so i think that they're going to be 
they're going to be hitting. There's typically a really long lag between um, their interest rate hikes and, and those people being impacted. Um, and that's coming up in the next few months. So I think that you know, the number of construction permits being granted or submitted is just dropping off a cliff. Um, and that will filter down to, to those workers. You know, and, and I think that multiple other industries are probably going to start to be to feel the pressure too. Um, how are you feeling, you know, just generally about we're in two different we're in two different continents. Um, this seems like it's been going on for probably you know, twelve months now or longer. Um, how are you feeling about it generally? Yeah, it's difficult to know actually what what is really going on. But yeah, I think I think we haven't started to see the construction stuff yet. I mean, there was a, there was a big layoff um, announced at Accenture. Which was only three percent, I think, of their workforce, but it was a huge amount of people. It was something like, I want to say, definitely north of ten thousand people. Cost, I think it, it said something like it was going to cost them, like literally billions, to make that layoff. So, you know, I would guess that they, well, their view is that you, you wouldn't make a sort of big layoff like that that costs you so much money if you weren't thinking that the long term picture wasn't rosy, basically. Um, but you know, Jeremy Hunt in the UK, the Chancellor is maintaining that we're not in recession now we're not going to go into recession this year you know I'll, I'll be running the risk of a sort of stagflation sort of thing where it's it's not a deep recession but it's long and arduous and you know you know there's obviously communication from the bank of england about you know warning employers not to put prices up not to put salaries up because otherwise they'll just keep on raising interest rates because the inflation is just getting fueled every single time every time someone gets a pay rise every time a price gets put up that's just fueling inflation and obviously that's you know very painful for the individuals if they don't get a pay rise or you know companies have to take a haircut on their profits or even lose money on a per unit basis but really trying to get this over and done with as quickly as possible is actually the kind of what we really need so it's sort of short-term pain for long-term gain you don't, you don't win either way really because you know you get a pay rise but then the prices keep going up and keep going up and it's like you need another pay rise you just want to get paid fairly relative to the the prices that you have to pay for other stuff. The amount of money is not that relevant. Obviously, feel for like, public sector workers, etc., are people on genuinely low pay, um, trying to cope in this environment. I can understand from the individual why you would want that pay rise, um, but it's it's that's why inflation control is such a complex issue. Um, it, it does feel like it's going to be the sort of depressed or stag stagflation economy for a while you know I would, I would say probably at least 12 months but if not longer um it doesn't necessarily mean that the way we work out there for people but it's just returning to real growth levels i think it's going to be hard i agree yeah i think there's a real like there's, there's, been, there's been multiple bubbles right there's been the the bubble for the companies that have witnessed this kind of unrealistic growth over the last 18 months that was maybe artificial from you know money printing and and all that kind of stuff, more money and liquidity in the system. And then you've had the knock-on effect of that, the bubble for the employees, especially I'm talking about tech really here, or, you know, those kind of nurses, unfortunately, haven't benefited from um, from that. But, um, and it feels like the companies have taken their medicine, you know, with layoffs and down rounds and everything that's been happening. But I feel like there's still um, an acceptance that needs to be had from, you know, people in those companies that just like the businesses 
have had to accept that they can't maybe raise prices, they can't grow as quickly as they were before, they have to cut costs, they have to become more efficient. Um, the same impact is just going to filter down into the employees that work in those companies. You know, there's going to have to be a more in line expectation of, you know, salaries increases and all those kinds of things, because a lot of the reason why those were made and were more extreme over the last 18 months was because of inflation, how quick the growth was and how out of control the market was. And now that's correcting and coming back in line. So does everything else. And, um, and again, we've said it before, you know, I think there's a lot of people waiting for, oh yeah, this is a blip. And you know, at the end of the year, we're just going to be going back to 2021 and that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I think what, what advice would you give to, I guess, founders who are going through this volatility at the moment? <laughs> it's like the other question, isn't it really? Um, I think it's incredibly hard to navigate. I mean, I think, you know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is that, you know, I think, I do think founders are getting a lot of heat as well at the moment and are also going through an incredibly tough time. And a lot of those things aren't, um, maybe obvious to their teams because you know you don't everyone everything because you know frankly it's it's sometimes it's the job of the founders just to sort it out or job of the c-suite to sort the problems out um i mean i think the growth will return in tech because i just don't think that i mean tech tech is just you know it's, it's a growth investment so it has to have inherent risk to it but it has to have high reward as well otherwise it's just too risky for it to be worth putting money into uh, tech companies um so i, th I think that Growth will probably return in tech, I think, before the wider economy, I think, because they'll be building products and building, you know, features for when the economy comes back. So you have to start hiring again, you have to start raising money again, or, you know, have to start testing marketing plans and all that kind of stuff again. So, yeah, I think, what would, what would be my advice? I mean, I think that what I'm interviewing a lot of leaders from tech companies at the moment across a lot of US leaders, particularly, um, but also across Europe as well. And, really most of the best tech companies at the moment, and this is sort of the enterprise level and sort of going towards IPO level, it's all about doing more with less and optimizing the spend internally. So it doesn't mean that they're not hiring, but it might mean they actually hire one person instead of two, but they might spend 150% of what one of those salaries might be to get an absolute superstar person. Um, yeah, I think just, I mean, the most important thing really is to try and keep cash really you know, extend runway as, as long as possible, but don't sort of disable your company, I suppose. Um, so you want to be able to have some money left and some ability to be able to build back in the future. I mean, one of the biggest things that I'm seeing at the moment that I don't agree with, I think in, in uh, tech companies is I, I, I completely understand about reducing the size of an Intel talent team, but what I fundamentally do not agree with is getting rid of your head of talent during this kind of period. Because for me, all that says is that you don't think you're going to grow again in the future. And if you don't think you're going to grow again in the future, you might as well shut the business down. Because if you're not at the level that you can sell right now, then you won't be without growing. So it, that seems bonkers to me because I, I do believe that things will come back. Some of the more innovative companies in the later stage space, and I'm hearing this quite a lot, are um, redeploying internal talent teams into the business. So into sales roles, into analyst roles I was hearing. Um, procurement, I think someone was telling me about as well with the proviso that's a sort of secondment and then pulling those people back you know the intention is to pull those people back into the team in six to nine months time uh, to start hiring again 
And I suppose the beauty of that is that they already understand the business. And actually, moreover, they understand even more about the business now because they've gone to work in the teams. So I can tell you that those companies will be able to accelerate incredibly fast at that time. And if you're a competitor of one of those companies, that's going to be dangerous for you because these are good companies and they're, you know, it does cost money to do this, of course, but I think the benefit long term is really strong. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be, a, it's going to be really hard for companies who are on the back foot trying to ram that at whilst someone has an advantage like that and hasn't gone to absolute zero. Um, yeah, super interesting. Well, that's a, uh, a wrap for this episode. Um, hope everyone enjoyed it. Give us a cheeky subscribe if you want. I don't know where the, uh, is there a button somewhere? I don't know. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, see you in two weeks time.